social scientists were studying, like they woke up like, wait, what's going on? We didn't study this region. Islam wasn't really seen as something worthy of study in the contemporary world. People who were studying Islam at the time were mostly mm -hmm. Orientalists. They were studying old stuff, uh, but Muslims were supposed to be done. They were studying an object in a museum. And all of a sudden, uh, they realize Islam isn't quite dead. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another episode of the Prophetic Mentality Podcast. I am your host, Amr Mabrook, joined by my co-host Munir and our esteemed guest today, Dr. Owaymer Anjum. Assalamu alaikum, doctor. How are you doing today? Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. First off, we would like to say thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I think it's like a tail end of your weekend here in Southern California. You're running on very little sleep after doing many talks. So we, we graciously thank you for donating your time to us this morning. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. A little bit about Dr. Owaymer. Uh, he's the editor-in-chief of Yaqeen Institute. He's the Imam Khattab Endowed Chair of Islamic Studies at the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at the University of Toledo. I think you are on the tail end of just completing like a decade-long project of translating the popular Islamic spiritual and theological classic, Madarij al-Salikin, Ranks of Divine Seekers by Ibn al-Qayyim al-Jawzi. I think this is uh, the, the greatest single author English translated text right the largest the yes. largest i think i looked published by braille 600 pages right something like that um first one first volume is 900 second one is 700 so 1600 total so far 1600 total so far. i was actually and it's okay. halfway done so there are two more volumes coming out got it okay <clears throat> so that's and by yourself <laughs> mashallah you're very lomabatic also you are the the current founder and editor-in-chief of the um, Omatics, is it, would I say institute mm -hmm. or group? What, how would you? Yes, it is Omatics Institute. Omatics Institute. And I think that's our topic that we would like to go into today. Um, you know, first off, if you would like to just give us a quick definition, like the elevator pitch of what Omatics is for the viewers that don't know. So Omatics is a vision that, um, first of all, the word emetics is like Islamic politics. It's comparable, but not quite the same. Because when you think about politics, you think about the politics of a state, of a nation state, a territory. When you think about emetics, which I, this is a term I coined in, in my 2012 book, um, that when you think, you're thinking about an ummah, and it's the affairs of an ummah, and so when an Islamic historical classical discourse, when the ulama talk about Ummah al-Ahkam al-Sultaniyah or Siyas al-Shari'iyah, um, they are thinking about the Ummah. And it's better translated as Ummatics rather than politics. So that's where the word comes from. Can you translate those two phrases? Siyas al-Shari'iyah? Yeah, yeah. So Siyas al-Shari'iyah literally is uh, policymaking according to the divine law. Okay. Uh, Islamic politics, in Islamic other words. Islamic politics, okay. And al-ahkam al-sultaniyah uh, literally means ahkam, that is divine norms, about governance, which is, uh, this is the name of the book of uh, both Imam al-Mawardi and Abu Ya'la al-Farra, um, two great scholars from different schools. When Shafi'i, when Hanbali wrote this in the 5th century of Hijrah, uh, al-ahkam al-sultaniyah, and al-siyas al-shariya is the name of a book by uh, Ibn Taymiyyah. Okay, so how does Ummatics differ 
from, say, the Muslim Brotherhood, right? Um, from another group, Hizb al-Tahrir, maybe even tab- the Tablighi Jama'a group. Um, and yeah, how does it differ from these other groups? And what, what, what makes you think that this new initiative would bring success where the others have, I mean, maybe the Muslim Brotherhood peaked at some point, but they're no longer as relevant as they used to be. Um, and you're also coming off the tail end of, you know, ISIS, right? right? So, yeah, if, can you please uh, expand on that a little bit? Right. So in brief, this is not a popular mass movement. This is an academic institute that studies um, some of the topics that those movements were involved in, but it uses the best uh, knowledge that's available to us, both in Islamic sources and in um, Western sources, empirical sciences of what's going on in the world. Uh, so basically we're a research institute that, <clears throat> that studies where, but that takes Muslims around the world as a unit of analysis rather than thinking about them as divided up in various nation states we say we have to think about Muslims academically as well as normatively in, uh, in terms of ummah, in terms of a global ummah, a single unity, because that's how Muslims feel. And that's how normatively, normatively they're commanded to, to feel and to act. Um, so it's both a normative, acad- uh, normative term and an academic term. By normative, I mean it's Islamically, how we ought to feel, and academically, you can actually measure some of, you know, some crucial elements of how Muslims act and behave uh, and plan their futures and project their futures uh, in terms of this category. So that's one, how it's different uh, in one respect. The second respect in which it's, it's different by virtue of this is that, well, this isn't a sort of an exclusive movement that has that you give bayah to and then you say, you know, this is uh, we're we're targeting one particular kind of territory or chain. Um, but rather it's very inclusive. It's it says, let us all uh, build our programs on robust Islamic scholarship as well as Western scholarship. Let's get everybody involved who has stakes, who is interested in welfare of Muslims, given the best knowledge that we have available in the academy and the world. Um, the second thing I want to say to you, to you, to your, to your question, excellent question, by the way, is I don't think that any of those movements failed. I think that, you know, if you think about what movements do, what human movements, social movements do, and you compare them to sort of historically what social movements have been like, um, each of these movements have been significantly successful. It's just that their measure of success is usually, you know, ideologically how movements define themselves is would be different than if you study them in a scholarly fashion and look at their impact. They might say, well, they want to perhaps uh, their their measure of success is that they are going to establish an Islamic state uh, in in each each of the Arab countries, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of their main goals, and in that respect, they did not succeed. 
That's what I that's what I was referencing. Right. No, so you're yeah. right about that. Yeah. But then look what movements like them have been able to do over the period of 80 or some years. They have changed the discourse. They have, um, you know, if you go to Egypt in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, for instance, just to take, take one example, um, for a person to talk about Islam in the public sphere, even though people are much more traditional at the time, um, but you didn't talk about Islam in the public sphere. It was Arab uh, nationalism. Yeah. Um, and uh, in, the, in the social sense, the way people, you know, you wouldn't see hijab, for example. Women uh, uh, who wore hijab would be at best khadamas, right? If you look at the, the social yeah, like servants, sense. Or like, exactly, yeah. servants. And I know I have friends and relatives who uh, who were shuyukh at al-Azhar, and they tell me, they show me their pictures of their own weddings where their wives are not wearing hijab because it was... So you have Sheikh uh, Al-Azhar or Sheikh from Al-Azhar teaches Usul al-Din. And in order to be socially respectable, his wife is not wearing a job. In fact, very interesting story. I talked to one of these uh, grandmothers once and she was showing me her pictures of, of her wedding. And she said that, you know, she has one picture where she does not wearing hijabs, you know, modest and everything, but a uh, wedding picture. And she said that, my husband, on the one hand, he's Sheikh uh, who teaches Rasul al-Din. And so on the other hand, he has to do all of these things. So he tells the photographer to take a picture, but don't look at her. Look somewhere else while taking the picture. But he has to take the picture. Uh, so that's how, you know, think, you know, schizophrenic things work. That has changed, right? You go yeah. uh, starting in the 80s with the Sahwa, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Uh, things have completely turned around so much so that in the political sphere now, if you don't gesture toward Islam, you don't really have much resonance. And, um, and similarly, in the public sphere, even um, secularists now speak in the terms of, well, we are just, you know, there are disagreements within Islamic tradition. Well, there was no reference to Islamic tradition before. There was no need for it, right? So, so who changed that? And this is happening throughout the Muslim world, by the way. We're just giving an example of the largest Arab country, but this was happening everywhere else. So in that sense, there is a mass uh, uh, transition, a, a mass trans transformation. In a sense, if you had an Islamic state like what happened in Iran, but the society didn't change, that would be a failure. Uh, in fact, you find in what, what happened in Iran in the 1979 Islamic Revolution that they, quote-unquote, succeeded. But if you look at their society, they are far less religious and far less stable than the movements that uh, worked more, or perhaps forced to work more on the ground. Um, so, and then that change has spread throughout the world. I mean, arguably in the West, the resurgence of religion can be credited to the um, the momentum, the inertia of the Islamic movement, of, of the Islamic world. The Islamic world said no to secularism at a time when everybody else was going along. And so whether it's Iranian revolution or other things. Uh, you think there's a revival of religion in the West? Yes. So can you, how do you quantify that? From my point of view, I think it's there is a revival of religion, but it's not any Abrahamic faith. 
paganism. Yeah. <laughs> right. So Stone what you're talking about, this is funny, because when if you were talking in 2000s, for example, everybody was saying how secularization, modernization theory has failed, that, you know, starting in the 80s and 90s, religion has come back in the United States and it's increasing in Europe. Mm-hmm. So compared to early 20th century, there was resurgence of religion. And then starting 2000s, um, but particularly in the last decade and a half, there's again a sharp decline. Yeah, there's like more churches closing right. than they are opening. Right, right. so yeah. there is a sharp decline, but that is very, very recent. So when you say recent, you're, you're in, in your term, right. when you say recent, you're, you're talking about the past 10 years. Right, so when I say recent now in the yeah. past 10 years versus when I say um, the secularization theory, like, if, you know, uh, that was uh, academic <coughs> orthodoxy Got in it. the last century, that religion is gone, is not coming back. And all of a sudden you had 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran, which was a revolutionary moment, not just in Iran, but also in Western un- self-understanding because... All of the major revolutions that had happened for centuries were all secularizing, all against religion, whether it's the Bolshevik Revolution or French Revolution or American Revolution or, you mm-hmm. know, even you think about scientific revolutions. Mm-hmm. The revolution was supposed to be secular. Iranian Revolution broke that mold. And, and people, you know, social scientists were studying, like they woke up like, wait, what's going on? We didn't study this region. Islam wasn't really seen as something worthy of study in the contemporary world. People who were studying Islam at the time were mostly Mm -hmm. Orientalists. They were studying old stuff. Uh, But Muslims were supposed to be done. They were studying an object in a museum. And all of a sudden, uh, they realized, and, you know, there are a few people who were paying attention um, before, uh, before this moment, but basically realized that Islam isn't quite dead. And so that's... (laughs) <laughs> Alhamdulillah, yeah, but but for them it's a surprise. If you go talk to people on the street in the Muslim world, they would have learned something quite different. But again, a native has no authority. Yeah, quote unquote, quote unquote. So a quick question before we get ahead of it. Um, you talking, you talked how we differentiate you differentiate from these other movements, but just so uh, to summarize it, what would you say is like the ultimate? What are the outputs? You say like Omatics. Okay, you say you said okay, we're not like a movement like these guys. But so, what is the output of Omatics? And then, following that, and this will help, I think, guide the rest of this conversation. What's the ultimate goal? Like, what do you say? Like, we did it. Like, where are you guys aiming towards? A unified Ummah, but what does that entail actually? So we often say that in 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 our internal talk in Omatics discussions, that if there were a unified government in the world today and with a caliph we would not need omatics any less. So even though we think of the caliphate as a very important uh, signpost, but what happened in the early 20th century? You had caliphate, but people found it unsatisfactory, right? What had changed? That is what needs to be transformed. And so we study that how society at various levels, social, cultural, intellectual, aesthetic level, level of arts, level of thinking, level of aspiration, Muslims become concerned with each other, concerned with ummah, concerned with the da'wah, with the call of the Prophet Muhammad to give to the world, even if the world is punishing you, 
you are a da'i. Uh, how do we acquire those attributes as an ummah and concern for each other as Muslims, that solidarity, at these different levels? If you don't have that, then political, uh, a political top-down uh, approach, a leader who has all the power, is not going to, in fact, make a difference. So that unity is going to come apart not going to be sustainable. So the question for us is how to make this Islamic unified civilization, which is our key word, unified Islamic civilization, how to make that a reality in a fine-grained, grounded, sustainable fashion rather than, you know, merely thinking about some great ruler uh, conquering everyone or somehow, you know, uniting. How, you know, there's a phrase that uh, Malik bin Nabi, rahimahullah, a, uh, an, an anti-colonial thinker uh, from Algeria, once said that the Muslim world, the Muslims had become colonizable before they were colonized. And the question, you, if you will, for Ematics is how to become self-governing so that we can self-govern. So you are just as much focused about the individual, right? You are heavily focused on the individual here because, and you said you're not, the, the, the movement is not a populist movement. My, maybe my definition of populism is wrong, but doesn't populism have to do with the individual, like building up the individual focusing on the change from them for the people? Or, or is, that, is my definition wrong? Well, so I want to deal with your definition. I will give you how I think of uh, what the umatics is, is the way we think of it is, yes, uh, any Islamic change fundamentally is concerned with the individual, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to have the theory that you're going to start with individual by individual and then that in itself is going to lead to a change. But rather you work both on individual thoughts, individual ideas, individual mm -hmm. beliefs and uh, individual practices, but also connections between people. So how is that different from the Muslim Brotherhood? They started, Hassan al-Banna would pull people one by one in and so, talk to them. And then from there, you built, they built a community and then they had some sort of, you know, understanding and they wanted to take, you know, little by little, they appoint people in political offices, right? That's kind of what they wanted to change things from the inside. Right. Right. The, the big difference. So first of all, we're not concerned with difference. In other words, it's not like we're trying to be different from other movements. It's like they're, they're each of them, we think of them as um, part of the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, part of the righteousness, part of revival. Um, I, did, I guess different. what makes it distinctive. And I know. I know. Yeah. I'm yeah. getting there. But I want to make, you know, emphasize that just because I'm emphasizing distinctness I'm not saying they failed, and I'm not saying that we're trying to be different. That okay. somehow that's how our goal, that's our goal. Um, but the big difference, as I said earlier, first is that we are uh, we identify the the threats and opportunities differently. Okay. They are working. They were working in a different world. They're working in a world of uh, mostly. They started in the interwar period. Yeah. And at a time when the Muslim world was largely colonized, formally or informally, but had no power. So Muslims were much, much more disempowered at the time compared to they are now. 
as individuals and communities in certain respect. They were disempowered in the sense that in terms of resources that are available to them, the Muslims at that time had no serious organic connection to um, the world outside of the colonized regions. Today, that's not the case. The world has become globalized and that has changed the dynamic fundamentally, number one. Number two, the way in which we, or the times were different is that they, they were working toward, um, they were much more localized. People could imagine action only within to their own territories. Their connections beyond their own territories were rather limited. Uh, in the age of global communication, the game has completely changed. The third way in which things are different is that they moved toward, even after, mm -hmm. quote-unquote, liberation, which really never happened, but formally, you had different countries. You have 50 different countries, uh, Muslim countries, post-colonial uh, uh, countries, each of which they were struggling to survive and develop. And the world at that time, um, particularly after the Second World War, there, the three, four decades after that, they're called developmentalism or managed capitalism, where the great powers of the world, the great winners of the Second World War, the United States and the USSR, but there was one large consensus, which is that we want these underdeveloped societies to develop under their own political systems so that they don't do what they what we are afraid of another war a third world war mm -hmm. so they don't start another basically people are you know these poor people of the world we are afraid of them we want to make sure that in their own countries they have development so one of the big features of that re that time was money and support was being given to governments in those territories a nation state was being built up 1979-1980, that changes. Um, and neoliberalism comes in. Governments are not important. Businesses become important. And all of a sudden, the world changes with President Reagan and, and Margaret Thatcher and so on. And all of a sudden, what we call globalization starts. And then comes internet. And, and then the rest is history. All of a sudden, you have both people and ideas and money moving around the world much faster pace than ever before. This changes what you could do. If you came to power, for example, if you were, say, Muslim Brotherhood, you came to power, you didn't never had a chance in, you know, in, in the way things work, but in the 80s, for instance, or 90s, what you could do was very limited because your decisions are being made by multinational corporations and by IMF and so on and so forth. And that gets worse and worse and worse. So basically, the idea that these movements started in an era where they were state-focused. They wanted to take control of states so they could change societies and control societies and Islamicize societies, make law Islamic law. That was their initial discourse. But in the global era, globalization era, their programs fell apart. Um, they were just out of place, but they didn't have scholarship to realize that's the case. Um, but something did emerge, not like they were all sleeping, they were people were adjusting, just not in the, in perhaps the theoretically sophisticated way that they could have. Um, and one thing that happened in that time was Islamic banking, 
became really important because a lot of money came out of um, oil wealth and people were trying to use that money to empower sort of some kind of Islamic economics, right? But they were co-opted because, again, they didn't understand the powers of capitalism. They were theoretically relatively naive, even though they're trying to Islamicize capitalism. Uh, that didn't work. But that was like the defining feature of these decades. And then starting after 9-11, we enter a new world of global war on terror in which Islam becomes the problem and defined by the United States, but taken up by all countries, all states in the world that are trying to control their Muslim populations. And so that leads to another era that for Muslims that changes the game. How do you anticipate these great changes that change the game that Muslims, Muslim movements are playing. Well, they don't have the capacity, the intellectual capacity to anticipate those or to understand what's happening and to leverage. Those people, those countries or uh, areas, regions that were able to respond to those, they are the winners of this process. To give you an example, China. In the 80s, when neoliberalism globalization begins, China has had its big revolution and a lot of, lot of bloodshed. I'm not going to go into that. Mao's, you know, Mao's revolution is bloody, millions and millions of people. But the institutions of the country are robust enough that they chart their own path and don't listen to IMF, don't become World Bank slaves like the rest of the countries, third world countries were supposed to. And they... China and India were the ones that were able to take advantage and build themselves up. Any other country that was able to to do that? Those were the two main ones that come to mind. Almost all others. Some of the worst examples of people who followed. What about Turkey? They don't have any debt to the IMF, right? They paid it off, my understanding. Yes. So Turkey was another example. Yes, you're right. Turkey is another example that was able to take advantage of a particular moment in history. And there was also one something that, in my view, shows the poverty of intellectual, you know, intellectual uh, aspirations, intellectual sort of vision of uh, many of the Islamic movements, because they were saying, look, we just want to follow Turkey's path. Hmm. But very little understanding of what allowed, what was the moment that Turkey took advantage of. What was the institutional background that was necessary, right? The literacy, the institutions. Uh, and there was a particular problem that Turkey was trying to solve, which is basically to keep the military at bay by, uh, by trying to join European Union. Uh, so it was able to take advantage of a particular moment. Other Islamic movements that are trying to imitate that model, they just think that Turkey did it because they talked about secularism enough and people gave them a chance. That wasn't what's happening. But anyway, the point is, uh, that's the kind of analysis that isn't happening. Now, again, I'm not blaming these. Why this is not happening is in part because some of these movements are anti-intellectual. They're they're with with the best of their heart, tablighi jamaat. They're not there to think about the world. Um, They're doing wonderful work, beautiful work. It's just that they're not doing everything and nobody nobody can. So this, this, it's, it's not a blame. But other movements as well um, are 
anti-intellectual. Even those that claim to be intellectual, they want to separate themselves from the world where knowledge is produced, both the ulama, Islamic traditional knowledge and Western knowledge. It's like they think that one person or two people wrote great books and we want to change the world according to those books. Um, and that's not how the world works. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his infinite wisdom has created a world that is much, much more complex than we can understand. And we should therefore learn and um, adjust. Uh, so that's, that's the way in which it's distinctive. So Omatics is developing the frameworks where Muslim society can function within the new globalized system, essentially. Is that like... A, yeah, you could say that's one of the goals. That's one of the goals, right? To, to basically... And that makes it distinctive from other, um, you know, other movements. This is the thing. This is the main thing because other movements were very maybe insulated within their They're own insulated, region. yeah. Uh, maybe with their own uh, thought. Right. But with Omatics, it's like, okay, we have like Muslims on a global scale, ideas moving at a global scale, money moving at a global scale. And there's a, you know, when this, if this fervor is also at a global scale, how do we unite? Yeah. Is it, I mean, correct me yeah. if I'm wrong. You guys are doing the work that, so people in these countries, the oppressed countries, when you're oppressed, you don't have time to think. Yeah. Right. So they cannot theorize and do these things when you're not in a moment of prosperity. I'm yeah. just trying to figure out where am I living? Where's my food? Where's my drink? Right. So Maddox, correct me if I'm wrong, you're trying to work on this framework for them to say like, okay, this is your situation. You may not understand it because you're just so narrowly focused right now, right. but this is how it's looking. And if you want to understand like how to move out of this such and such a situation, here is quote unquote framework for this type of world you live in now. Yeah. Very well put. Basically, uh, my assessment is that the leaders of the world after global war and terror have realized that Muslims are going to demand something better if you give them uh, space to breathe. So the best thing to do for them is don't give them space to breathe. Turn those countries into open-air prisons. And how long? They, they think they can last. There are certain families, you can count them on your hand. Uh, they think they can, they can do this. Um, but everything, every moral fiber, every intellectual fiber, everything about history tells, tells me that that's not sustainable. So what's, what's next then? Um, but also one thing that I want to say to the early point about populism that you made earlier, Amr, uh, was that we, we think that the best approach to affect a change is to study a very well-developed science of how societies change, how regimes change, social movement theories. And when you look at that, you realize that change occurs neither, it's neither top-down nor bottom-up. It's both, and it's complicated, and often it's the middle level that is most important. And what is that middle level? Let's say a Muslim ruler gets elected in a country where there is a chance. A new Muslim comes to power, ruler comes to power, whether they're elected 
Imran Khan, Erdogan, or whatnot, Mahathir, uh, people who have some concern for Muslims, right? Whatever limitations they might have. Or somebody like Malik Faisal, not elected, but somebody with a deep Islamic vision. Um, these, these things, maybe just names for you guys. Um, but there was a time when, when King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, for example, projected he was a leader uh, of this vision of a potentially unified world. Uh, unified Islamic world. He did stand up to the West. So he, like, he stood up to the West. Well, he stood up to us. He did not make certain concessions. He absolutely right. So he he may have been viewed as this maybe populist figure. You could say. Well, no? so no populist. I think you're defining populist slightly differently than I would, and I want I don't want to go into that. Oh, okay. So okay. Donald Trump is populist. That's so that exactly. But that's not the kind of populist that King Faisal was. For you could say Imran Khan is populist. So populist okay. is a certain is a term that's more relevant perhaps in certain kinds of democracy. Okay. And that's why I don't want to go there because you know somebody who's popular doesn't mean they're populist. Um and Faisal for example brought in teachers, scholars from Egypt, from Syria, from elsewhere, Pakistan, elsewhere, anywhere he can get to teach Saudis quickly because it's a Society that was, uh, you know, Bedouin society and quickly, uh, uh, you know, urbanizing, and, and you get. The point is that he was thinking in what we would identify umatically. Similarly, Imran Khan or uh, Mahathir and Erdogan, in some of their rhetoric, whatever the reality, in some of their rhetoric, they use umatic rhetoric. Why? Because they know it resonates. But when they come to power, there is a menu of options. Like if you take political theory, you know, political science, like leaders usually do not have infinite amount of choices. There are certain things you can do, one, two, three, or four. That's it. If you're going to go maybe in the Islamic direction, you're going to have to please this base. And that means you're going to have to take some of these policies, but then you're going to have to hire these people into your government. And that means if those people aren't, for example, prepared, then you have certain limitations, et cetera, et cetera. If you're gonna go use secular rhetoric, you're gonna have to make these friends, you're gonna get these people. That's how, that's how politics works, whether it's democracy or non-democracy. Um, but what is on that menu of options? It's what people are thinking, what people will accept, what people will tolerate, what people will go for, what people will, um, um, you know, how far they will able to accept some pain economic pain that they have to accept, for example, but you, you present it in a certain way, people will go for it heroically. This is a pain for a purpose. Other, there are other kinds of economic pain that people know is just because of the result of corruption. That's just a framing. How do you change that framing? To give you one example of this framing, uh, Imran Khan comes to power in Pakistan talking about the state of Medina how this is a uh, cricketer, a sportsman who uh, was a very successful, popular heartthrob at a time, um, goes to Oxford, you know, comes from a rich family, and reads a book about Islam by some like Karen Armstrong and, and realizes, hey, Islam is good. Like, I never thought that a white woman could say that, but it must be good. He finds his Islam there. And then, being a Muslim, 
um, and the, looking at the suffering, the inequality, the disparity, goes back, can, become, goes back, becomes a politician, picks up things like the state of Medina was great, was fair, was just, etc. Comes to power and has no base, and there's no idea of how a modern Islamic government is supposed to work. Um, but there is enough popular sentiment to make that work. But this is happening almost everywhere, many places in the Muslim world where there is popular politics possible. And then, you know, the Arab countries where there are autocracies, that's, that's a slightly different dynamic. But the, how do you change, how do you make it possible that somebody like the next Imran Khan in the next 20 years or Mahathir in the next 20, 30 years, when they come to power, they will have a robust, workable, grounded in empirical research, forward-looking, and omatic vision of governance. That's what we are, that's what we want to deliver, to change that many of options. And social movement theory tells us that that is how change is most successful. Not bottom up necessarily, not top down, but both by changing the way that people are going to imagine uh, what they will tolerate pain for, how much. So, People matter. Can I ask you a question? Can I finish one thought? Sure. This one final thought. Go for it. Um, why people matter even in an autocracy, even in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, even in UAE. Let's say one of these rulers comes out and insults the Prophet Muhammad <laughs> That person isn't going to last. That person is not going to last. In Pakistan, they might not last anyway. If they breathe, they may not last. But, because people are, government is weak, people are uh, activated. But even in Arab countries, this isn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. You cannot insult the Prophet ﷺ. But you can imprison tens of thousands of Muslims, and you're like, yeah, whatever. If the, you've tried to do the same thing in America, in the United States, that's not going to be okay. That's not going to be okay. If it has to be framed, it has to become a problem, but Americans rise up, right? Why? Because their frames are different. How is it that we can make, you know, this part of the framing of Muslims that you do not put thousands of prisoners without due process in, in, in prison, uh, thousands of people, innocent people in prison? That's impossible. You can't do that even with one person where you're going to come out to the streets. That's a framing issue. And this is something that even an autocracy or even a benign dictatorship has to worry about. So you change the menu of options, then both bottom and top, they have to recalculate their options. Okay, first off, that, that was an amazing point there, the, the, the differentiation between what would be okay in a Western country versus a Muslim country. I never thought of that. Um, so I'm gonna have to reflect on that a little bit, but <laughs> the point that I, or the question I wanted to pose to you is, let's say 20 years from now, there is a, another Imran Khan somewhere else in another Muslim country and they win an election and then they call you up, Dr. Raymer, can you please come to so-and-so country? Um, we need your help drafting our new constitution. Is that where you see this heading? Is that where you would say Omatics oh, was successful? Now we have this framework, we can implement it here. 
Is that where you would see? I think, yes, that would be one of the things that we could do, but a lot more, a lot more. What do you mean that we want to get to Muslim countries, to people your age and say, you guys need to start working now so that 20 years from now, that option is very real. We work with, for example, Turks and Syrians, Turkish refugees, uh, Syrian refugees in Turkey, Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. um, now. Like how could you come up? How could we come up with frames so that this nationalism, this poisonous nationalism, uh, that is that has really made it made Turkey uh, Turkey's life difficult between Turks and Kurds and whatnot? But how can we make it so that being Muslim is really powerful? It it will never be all there is. Of course, people always have other identities, but being Muslim is strong enough, as it was in the pre-modern world, mm-hmm. that you could relocate and be welcomed and this doesn't become now of course initially this was done but then the an alternative framing framing of turkish nationalism and the idea that they're here taking our jobs and they are mm-hmm. the cause of our misery that took over because some politicians made it possible how is it that we could work on those solutions like that's just political framing but also uh economic, entrepreneurial uh, ways in which refugees, for example, um, can be better integrated in weak economies, um, right? Because there's a lot of this movement happening. Things of this kind, open borders, right? For example, among Muslim countries, something very simple, sounds simple, but that would be revolutionary if it happened. It would be, it will be no different. It'd be no, it's not harder than what European citizens are able to do today. But the kind of social and cultural change this will begin to bring to the Muslim world, and it will not mean that anybody loses power. Nobody has to be terrified of this, except for people who want to turn Muslim countries into open air prisons. But I mean, just that change is going to be enormous. How can we work toward that so that 10 years from now, this is a reality? Um, Economics, for example, the trade today between Muslim countries <clears throat> is one number that I remember, and not an economist, but uh, from some of the discussions I've had, 3% of the total trade in Muslim countries is intra-Muslim. Wow. 97% is with outsiders. Wow. This means that Muslim countries are so dependent on outsiders, and usually they're in the deficit. They're on the receiving end, right? They're the ones buying and importing more, exporting mm-hmm. little. Yeah, we import a lot of agriculture, actually. Uh, yeah, even, imp- even though imp- a lot of Muslim countries they have exactly. Like, why don't we have our own right agricultural systems, right? Right. So this should become an issue that becomes like, what if we move that three percent to twenty-five percent? Not a lot to ask for, but in the <clears> last say 10, 20 years. Um, how could we do that? Um, so this is a kind. These are the kinds of things that will be necessary before and in order for any kind of unified civilization to be effective and sustainable. I want to actually, because you almost have to go, and we're reaching that hour twenty minute mark. Um, touching on your point on what do what can Muslims do now to effectuate this change in twenty years? What is some what are some practical thing that the layperson, like Munir and myself, could be involved in, can be doing 
can instruct our families to do to effectuate this change in the future? What are some practical things to kind of bring on this change? So first, there is a need for change in vision, change in dreaming. Okay. Dreaming is really, really important. Muslims, particularly those who grew up in the shadow of 9-11, forgot to dream. Life was a nightmare. Islam was a problem that you had to explain and apologize for, not uh, a divine mandate by which you were going to save the world. Right? This is how I grew up, thinking I'm going to save the world with Islam. Right? And there is something really generous about that. Hmm. Right? Something that's like you could be a hero thinking about Islam. The guys, the way you guys woke, no offense, but the way you grew up, and it's none of your fault, was that you weren't heroes, right? You 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 were apologizing for being Muslim, and I I, I my heart goes out. My my kids are like that, um, and and they're they're fighting that, right? This, the first that framing has to change. That imagination has to change. You have to start dreaming again. It's okay to say that I'm going to save the world with Islam. You have to have confidence in your religion. You have to have confidence now some, yeah. Um, more than confidence, right? A little bit of dreaming. Yeah. Dreaming is like, I know I'm not gonna, you know, it's not necessarily real, but it has to be, like something has to be out of your reach. Mm. So great for it to inspire you. Mm. If it's all that you can get, like, it's like, no different than in personal, in, in your personal, like every Ramadan, we pr promise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be better and not commit sins. But it's impossible. We also know that, right? We try to imitate the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We know that we'll never be like the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam or the Sahaba. But imagine a rational person who says, this is completely irrational. You know you'll never be like the Prophet. Why are you trying to be like him? Like, you know, you believe you'll never be like him. This is completely irrational. And that's what, you know, a, a simple kind of life without dream. But human beings never live like that. Human beings need dreams to live. And that's a foundation of Islamic ethics, but also of all other ethics, right? This is uh, all other before sort of modern darkness, uh, of secular darkness. That's how people lived. And that's how human beings are programmed. Even in a democracy, we know people never have a say. But democracy is an aspiration constantly that people are going to have a say. Like there are moments when this democracy is going to work. Um, so that's something that we can change. How do you change that? Well, first. Before you get to your next point, sure. do you have to go? Well, thankfully, class doesn't start until I walk in, but uh, I have three minutes. Okay. All right. So first, Allow yourself to think of Islam as a solution. How do you do that? Well, you learn history. You mm. learn contemporary situation of Muslims around the world. You work wherever you are. Any particular book for history? Think, think globally, mm -hmm. act locally. Think globally, act locally. Like when environmentalists say, um, and, and that's a really important model for Muslims as well because our ummah is global and the problem is big in the same way. Um, I wouldn't say there is one particular book for history. Um, you know, history is something that you have to learn from different perspectives and absorb, but particular authors to get the right perspective. How about that? Um, I think that 
so one of the challenges people have we have today is that most of the authors that write these sweeping overviews of history that make sense rather than talking about one, what one person did and how they mm -hmm. prayed all night and so on, which is wonderful, which is inspirational, which is how Muslims used to write often. Uh, but people who write like the meaning of Islamic history or the, the venture of Islam or like the history of Islamic society, they're all non-Muslim, often secular, right? Yeah, I can't find a single good right. book. That's what I was asking. Right. So that's a challenge. What you have to do, therefore, is mix and match until we begin to produce our own historical interpretations. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's why it's a tough question. Always start with the seerah of the Prophet Sirah is very, very, very important. Okay. Uh, it gives you a sense. I mean, I, I don't mean seerahs like this happened this year. This was the name of the Sahabi who did this. That's important. But that's something we're supposed to do like in elementary school. If you haven't done it, it's not too late to start. But I'm talking about like, well, the Prophet ﷺ, you know, at Badr, why did he go to Badr? Like, what are the different interpretations among scholars? Like, what is what was really going on? Mm. Um, like that level of knowledge of the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ. Uh, and you'll find that you will have a completely different understanding of the Qur'an once you're able to do that. Mm. Right? Because so much of the Qur'an, like you want to understand Surah Al-Anfal, you have to know Surah you know, Ghazwat Al-Badr, uh, right? Uh, if you uh, if you don't if you don't know that history, that anfal is going to be similarly. If you want to understand al Baqarah, I have to know early Medinan period, uh, Surah al Nisa. You have to know you know the phase around Ghazwat uh, Uhud and and so on. Hudaybiyah, uh, Surah al Fath. There's so much of the Quran. Right? We talk about read Quran, read Quran, read Quran. Well, you can't really understand and relate to Quran if you don't know Sirah really well. So learn Sirah well. Uh, and then one of the things about Sirah is that it is the projection, you know, great Muslim scholars, starting with the Sahaba, always saw themselves as acting out and imitating some part of the Sirah. So when Ali radiallahu uh, famously, when he made compromise uh, on, in Tahkim, he was thinking of Al-Hudaybiyah. That's mm. what he used. Like, I'm doing what the Prophet did in Hudaybiyah. Similarly, some of the great ulama of Islam, when they were uh, making important decisions, they were thinking about what well, the Prophet did this brother and Uhud and so on. So you have to know those things really well to be able to interpret Islamic history in your own place. Um, and Muslims continue to do that. Like Muslims think about like we are in the Meccan period today, right? Uh, because we can't be establish a state like Medina. But often when I talk to people, Meccan period for them means just private dawah and private, sorry, private dawah and private practice of rituals, which is completely not what the Meccan period was about. It was so much more. The Prophet ﷺ is planning, he's struggling, he's challenging, he's envisioning. So you have to know the Meccan period really well. My point is, if you want to understand Islamic history throughout, do sirah and do sirah really well. Okay. Sure. Uh, doctor, I have to leave. But it's been a pleasure. If you're still here in an hour, I'll have a break. And I can maybe catch up one more time. But medical law feet, you guys can continue, though. Yeah, Munir has to go teach right now. So we're going to continue the podcast here with Dr. Oymir. Salam, Munir. Salam. So the two practical things that you said so far, learn or have imagination. Right. Right. Uh, have the imagination to reach for something. Um. The second thing was learn Islamic history, starting with the Sira. 
and not just understanding facts about the seerah, but more of like an analytical approach to the seerah. Why the Prophet ﷺ was taking different decisions, you know, why why this path and not this, and how yeah. did this affect, you know, the growing community? So, uh, at like a high level, right. a form of of, of uh, seerah. What's the next? Th- Third, yeah, I would say be connected to the Muslim world. Visit. Mm, that's a big one, yeah. Visit the Muslim world, make Umrah. But, you know, when usually people make Umrah nowadays, it's like you're not really there. So visit the Muslim world, um, wherever your folks are from, if you have any connection. If you yeah. don't, if you're a convert uh, or don't have connections, well, then you're freer. Go to more than one place and try to understand without romantic glasses. Like often people think that, look, if Islam is good, why Muslims are in this terrible situation? terrible shape yeah so you need to know how muslims got there right but you also need to know where muslims are at if you if you go there without proper understanding without proper history with proper narrative you might end up hating it and a lot of people do because they go they've been trained by people maybe who just read books and have this romantic glasses and they go there and like well they're just all heretics yeah but that's you don't because you don't know the history and you don't know the narrative of how they got there, right? There has been um, nearly 200 years of struggle and there have been great victories in that and also uh, pretty tragic losses. Yeah. And it's never over. And so going there with the right kind of mindset, read, read history of where you're going, talk to people, talk to others. I mean, I found... Mm. Give a couple examples. I went to Bosnia um, and just talking to people who had lived through the massacre and living in some of the communities that had been completely abandoned, but they still wanted to live there. I remember an old community, old family, uh, a couple of old women were sitting, invited us to coffee, like I and my wife were there. Mm-hmm. And, and then fortunately, her, their, their, their son was visiting from Germany so they could translate, which would talk to them. It was just so moving, so powerful to hear the story of these Bosnian Muslims who's, who used to have a thriving life and then the genocide happened and now they live in, under constant threat of another genocide. But they were saying, you know, we see so many refugees from the Muslim world, Arabs, uh, Afghans, Moroccans go through Bosnia but they're always looking to pass to more prosperous European Mm. countries, right? We want them to stay here with us, but the economy is bad. It's, you know, nobody stays. So, but, but yeah, just that sentiment uh, that they are holding down the fort and they are really, there, there are shadows still there of genocide in Bosnia, but they're like thinking about those Afghan and other refugees. Um, that's omatic. It's really powerful, simple sentiment. No old grandmothers. Um, you you, ha- you see this thing, Palestinians. You talk to Palestinians, you're mm. still holding on. I haven't been to Palestine. Um, They'll never let go yet, inshallah. But yeah, if you if you look at their uh, their struggle, their strength, it's and, you, and then you look at some of the representatives and the people who speak for them, like. You know, that's so you have to know the people. My point is the third third point is that visit the Muslim world um, to know, which is not to say, right? I'm not trying to say where you're living. That's not 
an important struggle. It is extremely important. Yeah. Western Muslims are resourceful. We have freedom. And we should be uh, good citizens of societies in which we are at, in which w where we are. Um, and we should not take for granted things are going to last here the way they are forever. That's not going to happen. Uh, there are going to be ups and downs. And we should think of ourselves as part of an ummah and not an island. Yeah. Not even the center. I think it's helpful for us in terms of our humility. But also to know, I mean, Mecca and Medina and, uh, you know, there are, there, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there is a reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent in a universal religion, but its centers are territorially specific. They are in one place that you go to to make Hajj and Umrah. Mm. This Ummah does have a center. And American Muslims tend to forget that. I think more than anywhere else in the world. I've never seen Muslims who are more self-centered and exceptional, like, you know, this American exceptionalism. And so it's a, being in America that, makes you that. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That anywhere else in the world, you I go agree. to UK, you go to Europe, and your Muslims have a sense of being part of the Ummah. Yeah. Um, that's not the case here. It's really weird. I actually want, I do want to follow up on your point about visiting the Muslim world. And previously you touched on would it be, I think, the millennial generation growing up in America post 9-11 and having to apologize for Islam, always being on the back foot. And I think the first time in my life where I kind of had a mind shift away from that was when I went to Turkey. Mm -hmm. I went with a... Turkey will do that to you. Istanbul yeah, will. It was like a very solid, solidly led uh, tour group and they took us around every single site imaginable. And I was just mind blown that Muslims made these structures. You know, they, they built these institutions. I had no idea. Yeah. Seeing the pictures is one thing, but seeing it in person is something else. I think I've been to Turkey three or four times now in my last trip, me and some friends, we actually did an entire road trip through all of Turkey. Wow. And I think- All the way to the east. We, went from we flew from istanbul to cappadocia mm. and then from cappadocia we we drove south to the uh, to the coast and we just kind of did like a loop all the way up back into istanbul wow i will say it was some of i love road trips and i've done here in california pch right yeah. and i'll say the turkey road trip was one of the most beautiful beautiful road trips i've ever done in my life um we were just driving like a remote part of the country. Yeah. Just, you know, small little houses. And all of a sudden you just see like a huge, magnificent mosque mm. in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Right. Maybe it has like 100 attendees. But, you know, it's important that it's there. Yeah. Right. And it's pristine. It's beautiful. It's clean. Um, so to see that, to see Ihsan in real life, mm. right, as a Muslim, is just so empowering. Yeah. And then you come back here and then people say whatever they want to say on TV. Yeah. Your coworkers say whatever they want, but they don't know. And you know. Yeah. You feel it yeah. in here and you've seen it with your eyes. That's what I'm talking about. That's what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and now I really want to do that trip with my family. I'll, I'll send you the itinerary. Yeah. It was, uh, it was amazing. It was, yeah. Uh, yeah. For all, you know, wow. I'll show you some photos as well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think actually we are nearing the end of yeah. our 
our, our time. And I think this would be a great note to end this podcast on. Can I say one fourth? La- oh, fourth a fourth thing? thing? fourth point? I just didn't want to keep you, but yeah, no, please no. go ahead. No, I'm going to make it really simple and okay. short. Uh, Umatics, visit our website, umatics.org, because with these first three points, of course, what every Muslim mm-hmm. should be doing and all the time that's part of our education, but more specifically, um, how to start thinking about these next steps. Um, and so we have a lot of stuff there. Sign up for our newsletter because we have monthly colloquia. Mm. Um, they're somewhat academic, but we are expanding and growing. And pretty soon we're going to have a lot of stuff for um, folks, um, you know, broader pop- public as well, inshallah. Inshallah. Um, so, yeah, join us. It's real easy. And we will make sure to have all of those relevant links in the description. Uh, any other links you want besides uh, visiting Omatics? We'll also link your previous articles and all the relevant other interviews yeah. you've done. Um, inshallah, please. Uh, any, any any specific way that listeners can get in touch with you specifically? Do you prefer email or Twitter or what's your... Yeah, I don't have Twitter. I use email. Um, and if you just go to omatics.org and, you know... Contact us. Contact us. It should get them to me, inshallah, no problem. Okay. I love to hear from people from all over the world, and I do, and it's really, really heartwarming. Jazakallah khair, Dr. Weimer, for your time today. Jazakallah khair for listening, everyone. This is Amr Mabrook with the Prophetic Mentality Podcast, signing off. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.